invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. That's the Gospel of John, chapter 12. It's been quite some time since we've been in the book of John. Back in the spring, we departed from it, took a little detour for a little while over the summer, and we'll take a few more detours along the way. We took some time in the book of Ruth, in the book of Jonah, and now we turn our attention back to John for the next several weeks. We'll be looking in a few moments at John 12, verses 1 through 11. If I had to sum up this morning, I guess in a synopsis or in a a key thought, what arises from our text this morning, it would go something like this. God desires His people to pursue Him passionately with unbridled disregard for the treasures of this world and with reckless abandon for himself. It's a mouthful. Let me say it one more time. God desires his people to pursue him passionately with unbridled disregard for the treasures of this world and with reckless abandon for for himself. Raymond Lowell lived during the 13th century That is, during the time of the rise of Islam and the Crusades, which you may be familiar with in some respects. At one point in his life, he wrote, I see many knights going to the Holy Land beyond the seas and thinking that they can acquire it by force of arms. But in the end, all are destroyed before they attain that which they think to have. Whence it seems to me that the conquest of the Holy Land ought not to be attempted except in the way in which thou and thine apostles acquired it, namely, by love and prayers and the pouring out of tears and of blood. It is to this end that Raymond Lowell, whom you may not be familiar with, dedicated his life. Lowell's life work was threefold. He devised a philosophical or educational system for persuading non-Christians of the truth of Christianity. He established missionary colleges, and he himself went to preach among the Muslims. When Lowell was 60 years old, he wrote this, I had a wife and children. I was tolerably rich. I led a secular life. All these things I cheerfully resigned for the sake of promoting the common good and diffusing abroad the holy faith. I learned Arabic. I have several times gone abroad to preach the gospel to the Muslims. I have, for the sake of the faith, been cast into prison and scourged. I have labored 45 years to gain over the shepherds of the church and the princes of Europe to the common good of Christendom. Now I am old and poor, but still I am intent on the same object. I will persevere in it till death if the Lord permits it. So after much preparation and and much time teaching and training others in what we today call apologetics, At the age of 56, Raymond Lowell set out for his first attempt at preaching among the Muslims of northern Africa. And after boarding a ship in Genoa uh, to set sail for northern Africa, he was overcome by fear. And instead of departing with the ship, he departed from the ship and abandoned his mission. Upon hearing the news of the ship's departure, he was overcome with bitter remorse. And while suffering from weakness of mind and body, He heard of another ship ready to set sail and attempted yet again what he had previously failed to do. Lowell arrived in Tunis in northern Africa 
and some subsequently invited the Muslim leaders in that area to debate him on the legitimacy of their faith. They accepted this challenge, and the ultimate result was that Lowell was banished from the city. But unwilling to go, go he, he snuck off the ship unawares and resided in the town of Galeta nearby. And for three long months, he concealed, he concealed himself and witnessed quietly for the Lord. After these three months, Lowell departed for Naples, where he remained for many years, teaching, teaching and lecturing on the method of apologetics that he had developed. Eventually, Lowell returned to public preaching in the Muslim-dominated area of Bugia. It was during this time that he declared, Death has no terrors, whatever, for a sincere servant of Christ who is laboring to bring souls to a knowledge of the truth. Persecution followed. He was flung into prison and for half a year remained a close prisoner, befriended only by some merchants from Spain who took pity on him because of their common faith. The law was eventually released and banished once again, this time without any ability to sneak off the ship. The dangers and difficulties that made Raymond Lowell shrink back from his journey at Genoa in 1291 only urged him forward to North Africa one final time. In 1314, at the age of 79, Lowell crossed over to Bajia on August 14th. And for nearly a whole year, labored secretly among the little circle of converts whom he, he had won to the Christian faith during his previous visits. But weary of seclusion and longing for martyrdom, he came forth into the open market, market and presented himself to the people as the same man whom they had once expelled from their town. It was as though Elijah was showing himself to a mob of Ahabs. Law stood before them and threatened them with divine wrath if they still persisted in their errors. He pleaded with love but spoke plainly the whole truth. The consequences can easily be anticipated. Filled with fanatic fury at his boldness and unable to reply to his arguments, the populace seized him and drug him out of the town. And there, by the command of the king, Raymond Law was stoned to death on June 30th, 1315. What possesses a man like Raymond Lowell to pursue such a goal at so great a price? This is but one story among many stories that we could rehearse. There are numerous others that we can look to whose lives tell the same story and reveal the same persistent pursuit for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Others such as, if we were to go backwards in time, in an earlier period, Polycarp, whom you may have heard of. Or maybe for our Southern Baptist, more familiar, Lottie Moon, missionary to China. Or probably one of my favorites, group of men, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCullian, Pete Fleming, missionary martyrs to the Alca Indians in Ecuador. In fact, it was Jim Elliott who once penned, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, it's more than a goal to be pursued. It's more than a passion for a creed or a passion for a cause. It's not even merely the pursuit of a promise. Rather, it is a passionate pursuit of the ultimate treasure, Jesus Christ himself. See, Jesus is the goal. 
not merely the benefits. He is the goal. He is the treasure above all treasures. It's not a, a position or a prize or a purpose that you and I are to pursue, but the person himself that singularly compels so many to lay down everything of worth in this world to pursue him. And this is the singular treasure that rises from our text this morning. If we were to attain anything truly worth attaining in this life, then we too must pursue a heart that generally places Christ above everything and anything else. Over our homes or our spouse or our children or our jobs, our hobbies, and, and everything else that offers us temporary satisfaction in this life. And instead pour out everything, everything of worldly worth for the glorious sake of his name. Look at John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus, was, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Pray with me. Our Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds as we seek to to gain from your inspired word the truths that would effectively conform us more to the image of your son this very morning. And God, we recognize that apart from your grace, apart from your help, we have no hope of change. But we give you praise and glory that your very word teaches us that by this word, this inspired word, that you conform us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we ask this morning that you would do that in each of us, that you would convict us of our sin so that we might repent and walk faithfully with you, that you might encourage our hearts to go further than we've ever gone before for the sake of the gospel, that you might direct us more specifically in the ways in which you desire for each of us individually and corporately to walk in this community and in our lives presently. So have your way in our hearts this morning for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> the text we've read is fairly simple. It's a nice story. John chooses to record this at this juncture of this gospel, this, this simple story of a single woman's act of humility and honor 
toward this unique man named Jesus. In order to accentuate or, or heighten this act of worship by Mary, John also chooses to enlighten his audience, and that being us today, concerning the character of the heart of yet another, and that is Judas Iscariot, who would soon betray Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. The actions of these two individuals tell quite a different story, and so we seek to consider for the next few moments the tale of two hearts. And we're going to consider our text, these 11 verses this morning, under or through four questions, and we're going to keep these four questions in mind as we go through it. Number one, I'll give them all four to you first. Number one, what role does this narrative or this story play in the overall structure of John's gospel? Because that in itself teaches us something significant. Number two, what danger does Judas what danger does Judas's response reveal for you and I today? I mean, after all, the man lived so long ago. I mean, how could it affect us? Number three, what value does Mary's actions hold for the 21st century Christian? And number four, what does Jesus' response mean for us? So question number one, what role does this narrative play in the overall structure of John's gospel? John 12 serves essentially as a turning point in this gospel. That's why we broke where we did. Because the first 11 verses kind of have a, a chapters, have a focus, and then chapter 12 begins to, to turn a corner. Up to this point, John has on numerous occasions recorded in the gospel the phrase, in some way or another, his hour had not yet come. At some points, from the very lips of Jesus, at other points as a narrative commentary on the stories that he's included. It, it is this narrative in John chapter 12 that turns the corner reveals that the hour that had not yet come has finally arrived. You see, the last story that we read about prior to where we are now in chapter 12, if we were to go back to chapter 11, is the miracle of the raising of Lazarus and the subsequent results of that. Now, that particular miracle reveals both the practical and the theological truth not that we're going to go back and re-preach that, but I, I want to set the tone for where we are today. See, number one, practically, it, it seeks to, to merely or simply reveal the power that Jesus holds over life and death. You know this story. He says, roll the stone away, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Lazarus comes forth because Jesus held the power over life and death. But now, we, we have to think about that that while Jesus conducts that miracle, that, that very miracle itself shows us that there's a limitation here. Not in the power of Jesus, but, but seeing that while Jesus was able, he doesn't raise everybody from the dead. Did he? There were other people, surely, that died, and he didn't raise them all, but rather he, he did so selectively. Well, we don't know that he didn't raise anybody else, or there were numerous others, but we don't know for sure, but we do know, I think we can be confident, he doesn't raise everyone. And so selectively, he raises some for a reason. And so, for that very purpose, John, in writing his gospel, he selectively chooses to record this particular miracle to reveal not only that practically Jesus has power over life and death, but also a theological truth, or at least a pointer to a much greater theological truth. Theologically, this miracle of the raising of Lazarus 
recorded in the gospel seeks to allure our attention to consider a greater miracle in the resurrection of Jesus himself. Because unlike Lazarus, the resurrection that was to follow in this gospel, Jesus would never succumb to death again like Lazarus. So it points us to something that's grander, something that's much greater. After Lazarus' death and resurrection, the religious crowd at the end of chapter 11 seeks all the more to take care of their Jesus problem. And it's at that point that the high priest declares, it is better that one person die for the people, not that the whole nation perish. And then John inserts in there for us so that we understand that that the high priest, while he didn't recognize it, was speaking prophetically about something significant that was about to happen. But nevertheless, as a result, the text goes on in chapter 11 to to tell us that Jesus no longer walked openly, presumably because at that point his hour had not yet come, as John so often reminds us. And then at the end of chapter 11 we read, Now the Passover is at hand. Just a simple phrase. But more than a chronological time-setting phrase, but a time where sacrifice was made on behalf of the people's sin. A great exchange takes place, one in place of the other. A slaughtered lamb in order to appease the divine wrath deserved due to the people's sin. Now the Passover was at hand. But it also tells us that many wondered if Jesus, who was at the time not walking openly any longer, would show up. I mean, you can imagine the commotion, the rumors, you know, do you think he's going to? Maybe there was a poll. I don't know. You know, one of those things. What do you bet he doesn't? Well, from a narrative perspective, John, who's writing this gospel persuasively to declare the, the person and power of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he's setting the stage for what has been called the greatest story ever told. The presence of Lazarus throughout this text, which is purposely placed in there in chapter 12 is a continual reminder of the concept or the ideal of resurrection you can't think of Lazarus and not think resurrection I mean when you hear that name Lazarus what do you think raised from the dead resurrection John keeps this in front of his readers in front of his audience Lazarus he, he, he's here he's reclining at the table with Jesus and this is likely the reason for which John seeks to, to keep his name in front of us As well, it's probably the reason why the passage that we just read concludes with an added attempt to get rid of Lazarus, not only Jesus. You see, lucky for them, Jesus only raised someone from the dead. At least that could be minimalized or disputed. Imagine if Jesus himself had resurrected. Now that would pose quite a significant problem for the institutionalized religiosity of these righteous men. Would it not? Imagine, if only. Now the presence in this text of Judas points us to something we've already read continually throughout the gospel. And that is a continually ongoing attempt to kill Jesus. We see this at every turn. Every time Jesus does something, the response is they they try to do something about it. They try to get rid of him. While not a new concept as we're reading through this gospel, the death of Jesus is is now more than the thought of the religious elite on the outside, but now it's on 
the heart and in the mind, at least in a seed form of one of his very own, Judas Iscariot. And it heightens the possibility of success on their part. Now, imagine if we didn't know the rest of the story. We would be concerned, would we not? That now inside this circle was one who himself was not quite the kind of man that Jesus seeks to promote. So let us consider now the second question. What danger does Judas' Judas's response reveal for you and I today? We're not taking this in order, but I want to take this one first. What danger? Now, we could spend some time uh, on several dangers, but I think immediately we can draw from what we find here in the words of Judas, which are, and we'll read them again, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I think we find in these words at least an allusion to several dangers. Number one, the danger of the deception of worldly wisdom. The Bible talks all the time about wisdom, but it also distinguishes between worldly wisdom and and godly wisdom. I think we need to be aware of the danger of the deception of worldly wisdom. You see, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? What, What Judas says makes perfect sense. Why would you not sell this perfume and give the money to the poor? Why would you not sell something worth, get this, $25,000, the modern equivalent of 300 denarii, to do good rather than pouring it out? And for what? To wash some feet? To make a room smell good? Now, in light of that circumstance, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean... Imagine what you could do with $25,000 for the good of those who don't have. Now, while the scripture never suggests at any point that we cast common sense out the door in order to be good Christians, it does, does teach us that some things are of much greater value than a few dollars, or in this case, a few thousand dollars. And that there are some things that are of much greater value, listen, of much greater value than even some acts of kindness. And we'll give more thought to that idea in just a moment. But you see, worldly wisdom teaches us to store up for a rainy day. It's not bad advice. In itself, it's not bad. I mean, we, we work hard to try to put back just in case, just if. We spend a great deal of money, especially if you live in New Orleans, paying for insurance just in case the house floods, hurricane knocks it down, you get sick, you have a car accident. I mean, think about it. And worldly wisdom says, do those things and do them well. But listen to what God's Word teaches. You know it well. God teaches us to spend or to depend upon Him for our daily bread. Right? You know the prayer, don't you? And give us this day our daily bread. See, worldly wisdom teaches us that secular educational opportunities take priority over the church. Now, 
I picked this one as an example because this is an ongoing tension in the church, and you know it, I know it. Secular educational opportunities take priority often over the church. Now, understand, this is a difficult thing, isn't it? I mean, for everyone, many sitting here between children who are in preschool, elementary, middle school, high school, college, and the parents who are responsible for them, or maybe even grandparents. And there's a dilemma that we're faced because we're supposed to pursue knowledge, and that is good. But often, and it seems that in light of a momentary circumstance, like a given day when there's a tension, a dilemma, or conflict, it doesn't seem like a big deal to just set the church aside for that, because that's important. But in the big picture of things, what happens is we're always setting the church aside. And, and that is not the church as an institution, but the, the opportunities to be sitting under the teaching of the Word of God so that we might grow not in mere knowledge, because God teaches us that, that knowledge, though good, is vain apart from the wisdom of God's Word. And it is the church's responsibility, one among, one of, one among many, to be consistently and faithfully teaching the Word of God. Worldly wisdom teaches us that we should seek to provide a, and maintain a, a safe environment for our families. And absolutely true. We should. You should. But God teaches us also that putting our lives at risk for the sake of the gospel is the call to every person who professes the name of Christ. You see, that's why some of these fanatics, moms and dads pack up their families and move to these weird places where there is not sufficient medical care and put their children at risk and themselves. This is why people pack up entire families and, and move to places in the world where basic sustenance is hard to come by. Therefore, their own family might go without food at some points. Or they pack up their families and move to... And this isn't just other places in the world, but even within our own country, into places where the threat of harm is great, especially for those who would declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worldly wisdom teaches us to avoid such things. Godly wisdom teaches us that that is our call. And so we must be careful and aware of the danger of the deception of worldly wisdom. Now, this doesn't mean that every so-called sacrifice that we make, that we attach the name of Christ to, is biblically God-honoring. Because there are many who seek to act in foolish ways, who justify their actions by attaching the, the Spirit's leading me, or the very name of Christ. So, so don't misunderstand me. We're not talking about being foolish. We're talking about being biblically wise for the sake of the gospel. And ultimately, it was revealed that Judas, Judas sought to use spirituality to serve his own good. And he, was, he was deceived by worldly wisdom. And then he, he sought to use the concept of spirituality. Let's sell it and give it to the poor for his own good. He had no concern for the poor. John informs us of that. But he saw the opportunity to sound godly and gracious while only seeking to gain something from it. So the second danger is this, the danger of seeking to serve ourselves through the guise of doing good. 
You see, there's no shortage of people in the church, and I stress, in the church, who do acts of kindness and other good works that only cover up the real condition of their hearts. And usually, eventually, to many people, the reality or the real condition of their hearts comes out. It overflows and it's seen. It's the person who gives generously to the church only then to demand a say in what the church does or doesn't do. It's the person who serves generously and abundantly but then only complains about what everyone else is not doing. It's the person who says, I want to serve. I want to serve in the church and and do what needs to be done and then becomes angry because they're not asked to serve in, in their particular area but rather in another area or it's the person who says all the right things doctrinally but practically they can always find something wrong with what is being done by someone else it's the danger of seeking to serve ourselves through the guise of doing good and the list goes on those are just some examples and this is why the bible Consistently, from beginning in, warns you and I that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? Our hearts are so deceptive that we ourselves don't recognize the deceit that we fall into sometimes. It's why we're told throughout the scriptures, or specifically in Matthew, to get the log out of our own eye before we go to address the sin and the problems of others. It's why we're told continually throughout the scriptures to examine ourselves lest we be overcome by pride and deceit and be led astray just like Judas. Third question. What value does Mary's actions hold for the 21st century Christian? I mean, that's what we want to know. What does that mean for me? Now, in the middle of these allusions that John records to to death and, and the reminders of resurrection he inserts this simple act I mean you read over it you can almost miss it and you don't see anything special about it it's a humble act of worship displayed by this woman Mary and what Mary does is, is simple it isn't surprising though if you've read the gospel of Luke Mary's the same woman who while her sister Martha was laboring to prepare a meal for Jesus she was sitting at Jesus' feet On that occasion, Jesus declared that Mary had chosen the better part. That is, to worship for a while rather than to work. Now, we don't know the background. We can make assumptions about what leads up to this particular moment. Uh, We can make assumptions like, where did Mary get such an expensive bottle of perfume? I mean, a lot of people get stuck on that one. $25,000 for about 11 ounces of perfume. Where'd she get that? Why would she? (laughs) But it at least raises their minds. Why in the world would you pour that out? Interesting enough, uh, John doesn't offer any comment on the thoughts in Mary's heart. Like he does concerning Judas. See, Judas, he tells us at each turn, Jesus wasn't really concerned about the poor. This is what was going on in his heart, in his mind. He tells it. But he doesn't give us any insight into the thoughts and intents of Mary's heart. We only have the act, what she does to interpret her heart. And what is, re- what is revealed is that regardless of what we don't know, 
Like, where did she get this? Was she rich? Was it a family heirloom that was passed down? What we, regardless of what we don't know, we know she was willing to sacrifice something of extreme value in order to perform one simple act of honor and adoration. And this is the very definition of the word worship. You see, the word simply means to, it comes from a worship, to ascribe value or worth to something or someone. And, and in fact, it, it, it alludes to the fact that we ascribe greater worth or value to something above other things. You see, because I think we all would agree that to value things is not sinful. We value our, our homes. We value things we purchase. And that's not sinful in itself. But to value anything above our Savior is idolatry, treason. It seems that Mary recognized the greater treasure in Christ and desired to express her passion for the ultimate treasure. She was willing to be viewed publicly before others, humbling herself to the, very, the lowest point in order to magnify the worth of the object she adored. It wasn't merely about her being viewed in a low estate. It was about the exalting of the object of adoration. In this case, it was Christ. You see, she not only poured out a bottle of perfume that was worth a year's wages, but she poured it out on his feet. Something that would normally be done with water. As we see a few nights later, that Jesus himself does. She, she not only wiped his feet clean, but did so with her hair, further revealing her willingness to be humbled, or let's really say it for what that word comes from, to be humiliated in order to exalt the object of her eternal affection, Christ. Now, while this action is not prescribed for you and I to repeat in practice or, or even revealed to be something commonly that happened in their day, the truth to be learned is, is pretty clear. It's, it's pretty much right there. And that is treasuring Christ is of far greater value than any treasure this world could ever offer you or I. Our homes, our careers, our education, our hobbies, our relationships, and, and everything else that pertains to this world is worth pouring out for the glory of Jesus Christ. Remember, mentioned in the beginning, this is the very essence of the words that Jim Elliot wrote, who gave his life for Christ. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We're not expected to mimic this action but we are called to mimic the heart that gives rise to this kind of action. So the question that remains for us is, is what are you willing to pour out for the glory of Christ? What limitations do you place on worship? What's too much? What's going too far? Where do you draw the line when it comes to ascribing worth and value to Christ in a, in a way or in a manner that far exceeds how we do that with anything else in our lives. Final question. What does Jesus' response mean for us? 
whatever thoughts may have been going through the minds of everyone else that is present, Jesus speaks at the end of this act and affirms Mary's action. In spite of Judas' words, who, who very possibly said what others were thinking, Jesus affirms her actions. And his response teaches us several things. In fact, I'm going to give you three, and then we'll be done. Number one, we must be careful interfering with the acts of worship of others. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus said, verse 7, leave her alone. Simple, isn't it? Don't interfere. Let her worship. Don't mess it up. And we need to be careful about how we interfere with the acts of worship of others. And we can do that in numerous ways. Now, simply put, while there are unbiblical expressions of worship, and what I mean by that is there are things that we can do or say that we want to make spiritual that are, in fact, unbiblical. That is possible. But, but while there are unbiblical expressions of worship, we must be careful not to allow our preferences and our perspectives to hinder the worship of others. And we all have them, Right? We all have those things that we prefer and we don't prefer. We need to be careful about hindering the worship of others. It seems that we sometimes become so fearful of emotionalism. And I'm talking to myself. That we sometimes become so fearful of emotionalism that we, we quench the Holy Spirit. We, we quench how He works in the lives of some and what work He's doing. Now, this does not mean, don't misunderstand me. Don't misquote me. This does not mean that the only thing that matters is what's in your heart. That is not true. Because how what's in our heart is expressed does matter when it comes to our worship. But nevertheless, while we are to be discerning as believers, and in a growing manner, we are not to be discouraging. And we need to be careful about the worship of others around us. Number two, our present worship serves to sustain us in the dark hours of apparent defeat. Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, if you think about what's said there, it's clear that Jesus' words, so she may keep it, does not refer to the bottle of perfume. It was impossible for her to keep it for the day of burial. She just poured it out. So then the question becomes, well, what is it? What is Jesus saying when he says that, leave her alone so she may keep it for the day of my burial? And this is the best I can do on that. It, re it refers to the heartfelt adoration that Mary possessed that was apparent and expressed in her act. It was this joy this, this joy and this adoration that welled up within her that, that led her to, to perform such an act, an extravagant act of worship. It was this joy and adoration that Jesus desired for her to maintain and not be robbed of by the naysayers for the ensuing hour that was soon to come. And it was likely this attitude and the condition of Mary's heart that erupted in worship that would serve as sustaining grace in the dark hour of Jesus' death. It would be what would preserve her
to the dawn of resurrection morning. It is this kind of sustained, continuous, faithful worship that allows a dear friend of ours who just tragically lost, without reason, their four-year-old son, without any explanation, died yesterday. It is this kind of sustained and faithful worship that allows this young mother dealing with the sudden and tragic death of her four-year-old son to write. And this was her post this morning. Our sweet Hudson was healed for eternity today when our great God called him to his side. We are praising God for the four joy-filled years that we had with him on this earth. That doesn't just happen in the moment. That comes from a life of worship and adoration that is expressed that then sustains you and I in the dark hours of apparent apparent defeat because it only seems that way and while there is much more for us to say about biblical worship I believe that we are reminded that our worship even here today can serve to sustain us in the trials that are lurking just around the corner. We'll find it difficult to worship in the midst of tribulation and grief if we refuse to worship today. We're also reminded that while worship originates from deep within our hearts, real worship doesn't remain there. It's not a private issue, ultimately. It gives way to expression, expression that exceeds more than emotion. Yes, it is emotional, but it's more than emotion. Expression that overflows into outward acts that magnify Christ above all other things. That's worship in its expression. It's, it, it isn't just singing or corporate prayer or even sitting under the preaching of God's Word. It, it is those things without a doubt. But it's much more. Real worship will find expression that needs no explanation for it to be interpreted as Christ exalting just as Mary's act before Christ number three last <clears throat> now is the time to pour out our treasures for the ultimate treasure of Christ Jesus goes on and says the poor you have with you always but you do not always have me now we have to be careful here to not spiritualize merely what What's stated here in a, an account, a, a historical account of what took place when Jesus was physically on the earth. The truth that is communicated does, however, directly apply to you and I today. Now, our situation is much different. We do not have Jesus physically on the earth here so that we can perform a particular act that, of which the opportunity will soon be gone. And Jesus literally, literally meant that, that Mary would not have the opportunity to perform such an act again because he was no longer going to be present with them physically. But in principle, the truth is this. There are opportunities that are afforded to us in the moment to express our adoration and our worship to God and to exalt Christ that will not be offered or afforded to us again. And we never know when that's the case. Therefore, the time for us to pour out our all for the glory of God is not tomorrow or next week, but right now, this very moment. 
Not when we get our lives in order. Not when we get that better job where we can give more money. Not when we get our houses under control so things aren't quite so chaotic at home. Right now, this is the moment. I believe in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper distinguishes or defines well the difference in the tale of these two hearts, Mary and Judas, when he writes this. Until your soul has a thirst for Christ as the bread of life and the living water, you will use Christ for whatever your soul thirsts after. And I think that boils down what takes place between Mary, Judas, and Jesus. Mary's soul thirsted after Christ. And she poured herself out for, to that end. Judas ultimately thirsted for something more. And he used Christ as a crutch to get what he desired. What does your soul thirst after? Are you willing to pour out everything that promises to satisfy your thirst in this world in order to drink to to the full from the living water that comes from Christ and Christ alone? For he is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is treasure above all treasures and we are to pour out our everything yea our lives in order to adore and magnify the glory of his great name our father we thank you for how your word encourages motivates convicts drives us and compels us forward We read an account such as this about a woman. We tend to think, you know, so out of date or how absurd sometimes maybe that she would do something like that, a waste of money. What's the point in using your hair? And we often miss the point. I would that we would do some pretty crazy things because they flow out of the depth of our passion and our pursuit of you and you alone rather than appearing to have it all together in this world. Father, I pray this morning that you would indeed convict and challenge and move in the hearts of your people here this day. We stand in need to be changed. We stand in need of not living in the same rut, of not thinking the same way day after day, year after year, but rather having our hearts and our minds radically changed for the glory of the gospel. And God, there's also possibility, and you alone know, that there was one here, or many here, who, who are still, while maybe somewhat religious, are still using Christ to pursue what they thirst after, and have never truly repented of their sin and believed the gospel And I pray this morning that you you would bring heavy conviction upon their hearts so that they would, very much like Mary did, pour out everything and exchange it for the glory of Christ. Father, have your way in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.